Uh, I'm going to keep the lights off for just a second. Alfredo has been gracious to um, have our slide up from week to week, and you probably have not been able to see it great with the lights on. But just as a reminder, um, this is how we're progressing through our study of systematic theology. Uh, And you guys know that Michael has shared with you this morning, we will be looking at the Holy Spirit, which is pneumatology. You can see there it's P-N-E-U. The P is silent, like the silent P in swimming. (laughs) A little delayed laughter there. Back in 1998, I had an opportunity to go visit a friend of mine from high school. She lived out in Logan, Utah, which is very, very close to Salt Lake City. I went out there in December, and we were going to do a day trip up to um, like the Sundance area. And as we got in the car, and we were in the process of, of heading out of town from Logan... We were on the highway, and there was this canyon up to the right. And at the base of the canyon was a golf course. And, and of course, we were driving on the highway in in sort of the flatlands. But up, you know, at the base of the canyon, we'll call it maybe the delta, if you will, this golf course had all these trees, and these trees were all sort of like leaning in the same direction. They were all kind of like bent over in this sort of strange, consistent posture. And I was looking at it as we're driving, and I was like, I get it. That was a result of that wind that was just coming, rushing down that canyon that had just been funneled and channeled, and as it got out and was getting dispensed, sort of, I call it, as the, at the delta of the canyon, it was blowing all these trees on this golf course constantly so that they were all growing in this sort of general same direction. And I was thinking, you know, isn't that a lot like the Holy Spirit? We can't see him, but we can see the evidence of him. We can see the results of his presence. You know, you couldn't see the wind coming down out of the canyon. Of course, if it picks up dust and debris and things like that, you can certainly see that stuff. Snow. But you can't see the wind itself. But you can see the results and the evidence of the wind's presence. And so... In one sense, the Holy Spirit's operations are very, very similar. We can't see him with our carnal eyes, but we can see where he's been. We can see the evidence of his presence. So as I mentioned, uh, our study of the Holy Spirit is referred to as pneumatology. And we get the word pneumatology from two words, much like all of our theology series thus far. Two words put together, the first being pneuma, which means wind, breath, or spirit, And the second, obviously, is ology, which would be the study of. Now, I had my first introduction to the concept and the idea of pneuma when I was 16 years old. I had a hand-me-down 1979 Audi 5000S. And, of course, Germany thought they'd be really, really creative and come up with a five-cylinder car that was incredibly difficult to time, the cylinders. And they thought it'd be really creative to make the door locking system pneumatic. It was operated by a vacuum system that I had to repair on multiple occasions. As you know, a lot of modern cars, the electric locking system is electric and not pneumatic. So anyway, so wind, breath, spirit, air, and so on and so forth. 
So even though I've compared the Holy Spirit to the idea of wind and air and breath so far, in many respects, that's probably where our analogy and illustration should stop. For one very, very important reason, and that is he is a person. And that's going to be the first part of our outline this morning. And unfortunately, I think too many people in the church misunderstand who the Holy Spirit is. You know, and in almost every presentation of pneumatology, that's one of the first things that theologians seek to address is who is the Holy Spirit? Kevin J. Connor defines the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in this way. I thought this was really good. He says, The Holy Spirit is the third divine person of the eternal Godhead, co-equal and co-existent with the Father and the Son. His ministry is to convict and convert man, as well as to reveal the Son and the Father to the believer. Since the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, in all his glorious operations, is working through all who believe on the Father through the Son. I thought that was just a great definition of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, as Michael and I are very careful to present when we get up here, um, I wouldn't necessarily agree with everything Mr. Connor espouses regarding his total doctrine and theology, but on the definition of the Holy Spirit, I thought that was really, really good. And he makes three very, very specific distinctions, if you saw them. The first is that he says the Holy Spirit is a person. The second, he says, the Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-existent with the Father and Son. And the third, he says, is that the Holy Spirit convicts, converts, reveals the Father and Son, and is working in every believer. So our message this morning, our time together as we look at pneumatology, is going to break down into three basic sections. You'll see that from your outline. But the first section, obviously, is going to be, who is the Holy Spirit? We need to know who he is. When we refer to him as the third person of the triune Godhead, what does that mean? The second section this morning is going to be, what did his presence look like in the Old Testament? Did he exist in the Old Testament? Was he active? Did he do anything? I mean, can we see him? Is he referred to? What did his presence look like in the Old Testament? And our third section will be, what does his presence look like in the New Testament and today? What does it look like in the New Testament? What does his activity, his presence look like? And for us in our own lives as well. So, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's a person. He's not an abstract force or some impersonal form of energy. How many of you have heard somebody in the church, a believer, say it in reference to the Holy Spirit? Happens a lot. Happens a lot. You might say, Holy Spirit gave me a word and, um, and it said this. I would contend and I would submit that that's probably a huge slap in the face to the third person of the God of the universe. And, you know, we might speculate that this could happen for a couple different reasons. We can understand the idea of a father, right? You know, God the Father, it kind of makes sense. We can't, we can't see him and we don't know exactly what it looks like, but we can relate to the idea of a father, and in the idea of a son, well, you know, we can relate to that for sure. And we, we saw Jesus. We saw him hang on a cross. We saw him perform miracles. So he was physically with people in his earthly ministry. 
we can relate to that, right? We can look at the cross and empathize and sympathize with what he must have been going through when he was up there hanging. We can think about what those nails may have felt like in his wrists and his feet. And we can embrace that. And we can have sorrow and heavy hearts when we see that imagery, right? But the Bible says that we can actually grieve the Holy Spirit. And for many of us, that's such an abstract concept and thought. It's very difficult for us to relate to, right? I mean, we don't really understand the idea of a con- or the, of spirit in the first place, let alone grieving someone that we can't see. So you see that there's sort of this built-in, inherent dilemma for us carnal people to understand that he's a person, and we're extremely susceptible to misrepresenting him, discrediting him, and uh, dare I say, slapping him proverbially in the face. But as a person... He possesses the attributes of a person. I think your outline shows that we're going to look at four aspects of his personage, if that's a word. The first is going to be that he has feelings. I mentioned this a second ago, but turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32. Paul writes this, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry uh, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, slander, be put away from you along with all malice, be kind to one another, and so on and so forth. So, Paul describes what our behavior should be like as believers of a body with relationship and connection to other believers. And he says, don't behave in these kinds of ways. And one of the reasons is because it grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, the idea of grieving there, the word that's used there, implies a sadness, but also an offense. He is saddened and he's offended when we behave in ways that don't honor God. Huh. So he can have feelings, he can be offended, he can be grieved. And Hebrews 10.29, we'll reference this a little bit later again, but Hebrews 10.29 says that he can actually be insulted like you and me. How many of you know what it's like to be insulted? That does not feel very good, does it? In fact, might be one of the things that riles up anger and retaliation in us more than anything else in life. Might be getting insulted. And so, if I were to say that... Solar power is junk. I think it's wasted technology and worthless. The sun isn't offended. 
The sun doesn't have feelings and go, I can't believe that Dustin doesn't like solar energy. The wind isn't offended or grieved or saddened if I think that turbines are dumb. I'm not necessarily got a platform here, but I'm just saying. These things don't have feelings like a person does. The Holy Spirit does like you and I. The second thing, second attribute that he possesses as a person, he has a mind and he thinks. He has a mind and he thinks. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As we have done in this series thus far, there's a lot of passages to navigate to, some of which I will just read for you and others will take you there. Um, So don't get too worried about having to scramble around. Chapter 2, 1 Corinthians, verses 10 through 13. Verse 10. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except who? The spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by who? The spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So the Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God. Well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Shouldn't he? As the third person of the Godhead? He's the person who communicates the things that are freely given to us by God. He teaches us about God. He teaches us the mysteries of God, which we couldn't otherwise know without him. He instructs us regarding the word. Many of us have experienced that we can, you've heard me say this before, we can read this text and it can be simply black ink on a white page or it can be inspired by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and reveals its meaning to us. Now God is not mysterious in the sense that he's playing trickery here. He has written this plainly for us to understand. But sometimes a non-believer can read this and not have the revelation and the inspiration that we can have by means of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. The third thing, the third attribute that he possesses as a person is that he has a will. He has a will. Since we're already in 1 Corinthians, I'll turn to chapter 12. You can come there if you like or you can stay. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Verse 11. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So it says that he distributes gifts as he wills and pleases. Now we know that he does not do this independent of the Father and the Son. He does this in concert, in connection, in communion with the Father and the Son. But he distributes according to the will of God. Gifts from God are not random acquisitions that we've just been given by chance. They've been distributed with intentionality, by design, and with a purpose for each one of us. We don't all possess all the same gifts. We each possess unique gifts that have been willed 
to each one of us by the Holy Spirit for the work that he intends to do in your life and in the body of Christ and to glorify God. Acts 16, verses 6 through 11. You don't need to go there necessarily, but Acts 16, verses 6 through 11. Since we just studied this, you might remember, that's where Paul was intending to go into Asia and Asia Minor. And Paul says that when we attempted to go, the Spirit of God prevented us. He would not let us go there. And what we learned, and what Paul eventually learned, was that as the Holy Spirit then guided Paul and his fellow missionaries on around to the north and then eventually to the northwest, he made it into Macedonia where God had been preparing a man and a region to hear the gospel. So while the Holy Spirit was preventing Paul through his will over here, God was doing something over here so that when they got there, God could be glorified. So the Holy Spirit has a will. And, you know, we might say that a storm or something prevented us from going somewhere. That's not the same as the Holy Spirit. Now, God may use things, practical things, natural things, But Paul says specifically the Holy Spirit prevented them from going where they had planned to go, at least in the flesh. And a storm or some other event itself does not have the ability to orchestrate the circumstances over here when you get there. But God does. All right, the fourth attribute that we can look at. He is described like a person, he behaves like a person, and he relates like a person. He is described like a person, he behaves like a person, and he relates like a person. I'm going to turn to Acts 10. Got a couple of examples for this. Acts 10. Verses 19 to 21. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But arise, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Who sent them? The Spirit. And Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? You guys know that this is the story about Cornelius, right? So the Holy Spirit is to be obeyed just like a person is to be obeyed. When the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter, his expectation of Peter was, Go there. Go there without misgivings because this is... For me, you are to obey. Us in this room, we are to obey the Holy Spirit, that is the expectation, as we would obey other people in places of authority in our lives. And he spoke to Peter in a way that Peter would understand. Peter clearly understood it was the Holy Spirit, and he clearly obeyed. Um, Acts 5.3. You don't need to go there. You guys know this one. Acts 5.3. Ananias, what did he do? Peter said he lied to Peter? No. 
He lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit about what you gave? Well, you know, you take an abstract form of energy. You can't lie to some force, some mystical whatever. But you can lie to a person. Everybody here has been lied to. You didn't like it. It didn't feel good. Chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen told his accusers, You are all stiff-necked people with hard hearts and ears that do what? Ears that resist the Holy Spirit just like your fathers did. Michael took us through that passage. And Michael was so... He he did a great job of revealing for us that it wasn't necessarily this offense, I mean, defense by Stephen. It was an offense where he gets to the end and he reveals that the people who are accusing him are acting just like all of the Israelite leaders had done in generations past. You guys are behaving just like your fathers had behaved in resisting the Holy Spirit. When God sent you a prophet and a leader and all this, you didn't listen And you're not listening now to the message of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Those leaders who are standing there with stones and rocks in hand, getting ready to cast them on Stephen, were told, you guys are resisting the Holy Spirit. John 16.8 says that he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 16, verses 13 through 14. He guides, hears, he speaks, and he understands, and he interacts with the Father and the Son. So you guys know that one of the trends in our culture today, I just got an email the other day with a signature line, had pronouns, and I would summarize the Holy Spirit this way. I would say, if he was sending you an email, he would have pronouns at the bottom that say, he, him, his. Not it, not they, not any other thing, but he, him, his. He is a person. He has to be understood and interacted with like a person. So what did his presence look like in the Old Testament? There's generally agreed upon roughly 90 to 100 references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Did you know that? 90 to 100 references. Now, not everybody agrees on every single last one of those, but it's somewhere in that range. And, and so for our time this morning, we can say, well, that's, that's quite a bit. That's quite a bit. And so we'll see three main areas that I want to focus on this morning as it pertains to his presence and his activity in the Old Testament. The first will be his Activity in creation. It says he was active in creation. Turn to Genesis 1. You can all find that pretty easily. Genesis 1, verse 2. Surprising I can't even get there fast enough. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So what we see here is that the Spirit hovered over uh, what we would call an unfashioned earth at the time. Now, 
Michael has a great presentation that he has done on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I think even uh, up to Genesis 7, but he has reminded us that the term formless there is probably better translated as a barren wasteland. Okay? It doesn't mean that there wasn't anything at all and it was just kind of this nebulous. No, there was... There was something there, but it was just kind of a barren wasteland. And the Holy Spirit was hovering over it in the beginning. Turn with me to Isaiah 40. This is a passage that's, I would say, closely connected to Genesis 1 and verse 2. Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 14. Isaiah 40, 12 through 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Isaiah writes here that the Holy Spirit was present in the beginning and he was active in laying out the universe. He was active in setting forth the laws in which we experience everything we know about the created world, the Holy Spirit was active as part of the triune Godhead. I'll just read these to you. Job 33.4 The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So the Holy Spirit was active in giving life to mankind. Psalm 33.6 By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth, all their host. The Holy Spirit was active in creating the heavens. Psalm 104, verse 30. You send forth your spirit, and they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So he was active in the creation of all the animals. So we can see that one of the Activities in the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was his activity in creation. Very, very involved and fundamental. The second thing, second realm we'll look at, he was responsible for inspiring the authors and prophets of the Old Testament. He was responsible for inspiring the authors and prophets of the Old Testament. We know this from Second Peter. Second Peter verse... Chapter 1, verse 21. Prophecies were not born of man's will, but by the movement of who? The Holy Spirit. So Peter recognizes that the prophecies of old that foretold the Messiah and everything else wasn't something that man just came up with and concocted and was really a creative author and writer, but they were given by the Holy Spirit. You guys know that 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Wait, all scripture. So not just the new stuff, Old Testament and New Testament is all God-breathed. The Holy Spirit was active 
in working with God's elect to pen exactly what God wanted us to know. First Sam, or Second Samuel, verse twenty-three, chapter twenty-three, verse two. The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, and His word was on my tongue. Micah, chapter three, verse eight. I like this one. Micah, chapter three, verse eight. But I am full of the courage that the Lord's Spirit gives, and have a strong commitment to justice. And then Micah says, "This enables me to confront Jacob with its rebellion and Israel with its sin." What I love about this passage, or that particular verse, is that you know that God's prophets oftentimes had a message of repentance, of rebuke, correction, turn from your wicked ways, typically a message that was pretty harsh in delivering and not always received well, right? Think about us today, when we go to present culture and we try to highlight and identify the sin It's not always well received, is it? Not everybody wants to hear that they need to turn from their wicked ways. No, I kind of like my lifestyle. I'd rather just keep on living the way I am. Leave me alone. God's prophets weren't always well received. They were respected and they were understood to be the mouthpiece of the Lord. But at times, they had a message that was difficult to receive. And what Micah says here is, not only did the word of the Lord come to me by the Spirit, but the Spirit also gives me the courage to go and deliver this. The Spirit gives me the courage to share this message of repentance and rebuke and to turn from your sinful ways. I would say that the Holy Spirit should do the same for us, right? Can we rely on Him to give us the courage today to go and share a difficult message with somebody who needs to hear it? Psalm 110, Jesus quoted when he was deliberating with the Pharisees, when he said, okay, so David is referring to one who will sit on his own throne forever, and he's referring to this individual as Lord. How does David say of one of his descendants, and how does he call him Lord? And Jesus says he's able to do this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who enabled David to write Psalm 110, is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Acts 4.25, Peter credits the Holy Spirit for giving David the words to write in Psalm 2. Acts 4.25, that's what Peter says. David was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he penned Psalm 2. Acts 28, verse 25, Paul we just covered this in our study of Acts, quoted Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, when he invited the Jewish leaders to his house where he was being detained. Remember how he had a couple of years where he was being detained and he invited all of the Jewish leaders to come and he would reason with them? Well, he quoted Isaiah and gave Isaiah credit for inspiration from the Holy Spirit. The third realm, region of activity we'll see. His presence was not necessarily permanent and it was mostly relegated to the nation of Israel. His presence in the Old Testament was not necessarily permanent and it was mostly relegated to the nation of Israel. Now you guys have heard that uh, Michael is um, kind of following... Millard Erickson and some of his outlines, um, I've been 
Consulting, Charles Ryrie. Ryrie says this about the Holy Spirit's presence in the Old Testament. He describes it with three words. The Holy Spirit was in certain ones. He came upon some. And he filled some. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was in certain people. He came upon certain people. And he filled some people. Uh, what we'll do is we'll just, I'll list these references for you. Genesis 41 verse 38. Pharaoh recognized that the Spirit was in Joseph. Pharaoh understood there's something different about Joseph. Can't always put my finger on it, but I know I see something in him. Numbers 27 18. The Spirit was in Joshua. Daniel 4, 8, 5, 11 through 14, and Daniel 6, 3. King Belshazzar recognized the Holy Spirit in Daniel, or Belshazzar. He understood on multiple occasions, he said, Spirit is in Daniel over there. So you see that he was in some. He came upon some. Numbers 24, verse 2. Spirit came upon Balaam and he blessed Israel initially. I put that in parentheses. Initially. You know the story of Balaam. God wanted to use Balaam to speak against King Balak and to prophesy against and to prophesy for and bless God's people. And so initially, Balaam did do that. The Holy Spirit inspired Balaam to bless Israel, but as the story goes, he was working more for a paycheck, and whoever had the biggest paycheck, that's where Balaam went. So he later rejects God. But God used him initially. Uh, Judges, chapter 3, verse 10, Spirit came upon Othniel, which was Israel's first judge, and when the Spirit came upon him, it says that the land had peace. Israel had peace for the time that Othniel was judge. Judges 6.34, Spirit came upon Gideon, chapter 6, verse 34, to assemble the men against Midian. You guys remember that story? The Holy Spirit came upon Gideon to help him gather and assemble an army to go against the Midianites. First uh, Samuel, chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, the Spirit came upon Saul and he was dramatically changed. And 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, Spirit left Saul, and an evil spirit began to torment him. So those were some examples where he came upon some individuals in the Old Testament. And then lastly, we said that he filled some. Exodus 31, verses 1 through 5. Exodus 35, verse 31. God filled um, Bezalel with his spirit so he could lead the construction of the temple. And that appears to be a very specific assignment. It appears to be a specific assignment that God dwelt with him to lead the craftsmen in the excellence of constructing the temple. 
And so what we see is that the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was not given to all, but he had a presence in some individuals. I kind of liken that in our field to design. We often joke and say that not everybody can design. Some can be good critiques or critics. They can look at design and they can discern good design from bad, and that's great. But if they're charged with the responsibility of generating good design, they can't do it. I think what we see in the Old Testament a lot of times was many people would recognize and see the Holy Spirit working through somebody that God had elected, but he was not available to everybody. He was only available to those whom God was specifically and uniquely powering at that time. And what a great contrast that is for us today, right? The Holy Spirit has been given to all of us. And so that's what we're going to focus on here in our last section uh, is going to be our time in the New Testament. What does his presence look like in the New Testament and today? And so before we jump directly into that, it's important to recognize two distinct contrasts that we've been told would take place regarding the Holy Spirit's ministry, both pre- and post-crucifixion. You should have that on your outlines. Two distinct differences or contrasts of what the Holy Spirit looked like prior to crucifixion and then after. The first distinction is that he would be given as a permanent gift after the cross. Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to begin in verse 16. Chapter 14, verse 16. Before Jesus' departure... He's sharing with his disciples. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you, what? Forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Okay. So Jesus, prior to Jesus' own crucifixion and departure, said this about the Holy Spirit. He said four things. He will be dispatched by the Father and he will remain with believers forever. The first thing Jesus promises about the Holy Spirit after Jesus is gone is that he will remain with believers forever. Second thing he says is that he will not be received or known by unbelievers The third thing he said is, he currently abides with the disciples, but he's not in them, right? He says he's with you, he's among you, but he, he's not in you. He will be in you after I leave, and I will ask the Father to send him. And that's the fourth thing. He will be in the disciples at some point in the future when Jesus is gone. So the second distinction that we see or contrast between the time prior to the cross and afterwards 
is that God promised that after the cross, the Holy Spirit would be given to all mankind. Uh, I'm just going to turn to Acts 2, since we're in John. Acts 2, verse 17, which you know will be Peter referring to the prophecy of Joel in chapter 2. And so Peter says, But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So back in Joel, God had already given a little hint, a little glimpse, that one day in the future... The Holy Spirit would be poured out and given as a gift for all of mankind, meaning not just God's chosen people of Israel, but us Gentiles and all who would call upon the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. So that's the second distinction that we have pre and post cross. So the Holy Spirit will be available to all who believe, and he will be permanent within those who believe. So, three specific ministries. Now, there are many ministries of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Many ministries, and I had to decide which ones to cover. So we're just going to go with a couple of high-level ones, because I believe that many of the other ones, like he teaches and he, um, he comforts and he guides and assures and things like that, He baptizes. I believe those sort of fall under these three categories and these three ministries that we are going to spend some time looking at this morning. Uh, Those three ministries of the Holy Spirit that we see in the New Testament and we see today will be as follows. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The second category will be the Holy Spirit seals us. And the third will be the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. So in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, Acts 11, 16 through 17, Romans 5, 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, Romans 8, 9 through 11. I just gave you a ton of those. I just gave you a ton of that you probably couldn't write down. You want them again? John 7, 37 to 39. Acts 11, 16 to 17. Romans 5, 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. And Romans 8, 9 and 11. These are all examples that the Holy Spirit has been given to each believer. In other words, he hasn't been given based purely on performance or credentials or anything other than accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior means that the Holy Spirit has been given to that believer. The Holy Spirit has been given to each one of us when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's it. There, is, there are no hoops to jump through. There is no list to check. 
There are no tasks to accomplish. He's been given freely upon faith in the one. The Holy Spirit seals us. Ready for some verses? 2 Corinthians 1, 22. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Ephesians 4, verse 30. He seals us. What does it mean to be sealed? He serves as a guarantee for us. He serves as a down payment that God will faithfully keep his promise to ultimately glorify us. He's he's a deposit of our inheritance of God's kingdom. Many of you know that when you are maybe negotiating for the purchase of some something large, maybe real estate, that sometimes you can put down earnest money, right? Earnest money is supposed to be a guarantee. It's supposed to demonstrate that you're good for the remainder of the payment that will eventually come, and you're showing, I'm good for this. Here is a deposit, here is a guarantee that I will be able to come up with the rest. The Holy Spirit seals us, and that serves as our guarantee that God will complete the work that he has begun in us. That we will be glorified and see Jesus face to face when we pass from this life to the next. He is our guarantee. Um, you guys have heard me refer to my employee, one of our employees, Ethan, at the office. Ethan wants to get into what he calls development. I call it flipping houses. He calls it development. That's the sophisticated word for it. And he wants my help. And the reason he wants my help primarily is partly knowledge and experience in the process, but borrowing power. He's 28 with no credit, no collateral, and no cash. So what he comes to me and says is, I want you to co-sign. I said, I'm not co-signing. This can be my deal and you can ride along if you want. Because what I am being asked to do by you, whether you realize it or not, is be solely responsible for the entire debt. You aren't bringing anything to the table, Ethan. (laughs) You have a great heart. You've got some great ideas. But you aren't putting down the deposit that shows there's financial backing and financial power to then do the rest of the deal. God has said, I'm good enough for it. I got it covered. And the Holy Spirit serves as a seal of my deposit for your inheritance. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Oh, that's a loaded term, isn't it? Holy Spirit sanctifies us. To sanctify simply just means to be set apart for holiness. Now, you've heard Michael and I share before that there are a couple of aspects to sanctification. The first would be referred to as our positional sanctification. In other words, our eternal position in Christ Jesus. 
You guys know, you've heard us preach this before. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul addresses the church in Corinth and he says, Hey, church, hey, believers, you saints sanctified in Christ Jesus. When he says that, he's talking about a deal and a condition that's completely done. Right? He's going to go on and write to them about all the ways in which they're falling short. But when he opens this letter, he says, To those saints sanctified in Corinth. Well, hold on a second, Paul. You're calling these people, these flawed people, sanctified, which means that they are completely holy and set apart, but yet you're going to go on and talk about how they're missing the mark. Yeah, exactly. Because their position, their positional sanctification in Christ Jesus is that of complete and total holiness. When God looks at a believer through the lens of Jesus' blood, positionally in Jesus for eternity, we are as holy as we could ever be. How holy is Jesus? He's completely holy. Washed in his blood, how holy are we? As holy as he is, positionally. That's who we are in the kingdom of God now. That is our position for eternity. Hebrews 13.12 says that Jesus suffered in order to sanctify the people through his blood. A done deal. Positional. Acts 20, verse 32. When Paul was on the beach saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus for the final time, and they wept and they hugged him, knowing that it was the last time that they would see his face, he said this to them. He said, I commend you to God and his word, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are what? Sanctified. Paul says, I'm leaving you in good hands, the hands of God, the only one who is able to give you an inheritance, according to his word, that is available to all who are sanctified. And then 1 Corinthians 6.11. 1 Corinthians 6.11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and reminding them, you used to be just like the people that, when you look out the window and you see them misbehaving, you see the pagan cultures all around you, Hold on a second here. You used to be just like them, remember? You used to do all the same things that you see them doing that now you're complaining about. But you have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, you've been set apart. Positionally, this is who you are in the eyes of God. But there's also a progressive sanctification. So the Holy Spirit is active in positional sanctification, Assuring, confirming, securing our position in Christ, but he is active in our progressive sanctification, which is the process of being transformed more like Jesus now on this side of eternity, on this side of heaven. Hmm, this is where the rubber meets the road. Woohoo, I love being positionally sanctified. The process of sanctification, oh. Well, I don't know about that. The results are good. The process, hmm. Philippians 2, 12-13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the process of aligning our actions and lives with our position in Christ Jesus. 
If this is who God has said you are positionally, and your life and your activities and your decisions don't look like that, then you are to work out through who? Through the Holy Spirit, a sanctifying process that ultimately makes your life look like the position, the declaration that God has already made about you. Romans 8.13 reveals that the Holy Spirit is the agent who enables this process. Romans 5, 3-5, makes reference to exalting in tribulation and that persevering happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. The process of becoming more sanctified in this life looks like things like enduring, enduring tribulation, persevering. These things are not natural. These are abilities and empowerments by the Holy Spirit. James talks about that. Rejoice in your trials. Woohoo. You can't do that unless the Holy Spirit is working in and through you through the process of sanctification that allows you to go, okay, this really hurts, and I don't like what I'm going through, but what I can rejoice in is that God is going to use it for His good and that I know I'm going to be changed. I know that when I come out on the other side, I'm going to be better for it. Galatians 5, 22-23, you all know this, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-23. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. These are not natural qualities. Well, for most of you, I come by them naturally, but most of you aren't as patient as I am, or love, or as kind as I am. But this is the process of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul writes it's the fruit of the Spirit. This is... The Holy Spirit's work in the sanctification process that we experience now. And I do want you to turn to this passage, 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we kind of pull this all together. 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is a beautiful passage, beautiful verse, I love it. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Wow. We are being transformed from glory to glory. Anybody ever been a part of an art class where you were charged with subtractive sculpting. You know what I mean when I say subtractive sculpting? Uh, the process of additive sculpting would be taking clay and molding it, putting it together and, and uh, crafting something. The process of subtractive sculpting is to take a lump, take a soapstone, an alabaster, a granite, marble, and to see it in its raw, harvested form out of the earth and to slowly chisel away and work at it and subtract and take away until you get to the form and the image 
and the masterpiece that's in there. And art instructors and masters will tell you, sometimes you have to study this lump for a while to discern what's in there and to figure out what you want this to look like when you're done with it. And you study that for a while and you see, I've got a vision. I I can see what's in there and now I'm going to begin this process of chipping it away at the stuff that's not needed so that I can progressively get to this masterpiece. And what does the artist do? The artist starts with the big chunks, then takes maybe a smaller chisel and is working on smaller areas. Then eventually you get to some sandpaper. And then eventually you get to some polish. And then it's done. And it's beautiful. And this shape, this masterpiece, this piece of art came out of this raw, rough, chunky mind resource. Isn't that kind of what the process of sanctification looks a little bit like for us? God saves us. Positionally, we're completely sanctified. We're as holy as we could ever be in his eyes. But our behavior doesn't always match our position in Christ. And so he takes the rough edges and he starts with the big stuff. And I don't know what the big stuff is for you guys in your lives. Maybe it was vocabulary. Maybe for some it's a, it's a habit. It's an addiction. Smoking or something. Whatever it might be. But it's, it's the big stuff. And he's chunking that stuff off. Right? And you get through that. And then he comes in with the smaller chisel. And then he comes in with the sandpaper. And you think, God, are, are we not done yet? Am I not close enough to sanctification that we can stop this process? And he goes, oh, I got the, I got the 3,000 grit coming next. And as, as we wane and get close to the end of life, he's working with a polishing cloth, which looks and feels smooth, but in the end, it's still taken off material. You know the image that he is getting to? According to first, Second Corinthians verse 18 of chapter 3, he's making us look like Jesus. When he sees our raw state, our lumpiness, when we came to him and said, yes, I believe in you as Lord and Savior, it's rough. And he looks at us with all of our chunkiness and our rough edges and he goes, I see my son in there and my Holy Spirit is going to be the agent working to draw out that image of my son so that each one of us in this room eventually gets transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ Jesus. And praise be to God that when we see him face to face we will be perfectly glorified, and that work and that process will be done. We will not be Jesus, but we will look like him. What looks like this, God is slowly going like that. So the Holy Spirit's assignment for the believer is to transform us into the image of Christ and to reveal the Son and to reveal the Father to both us 
in the world. Uh, Matt and I had an opportunity to go to a funeral service yesterday for a friend of ours who passed away. His name was Jerry, and Pastor Fenton, who was officiating, shared with the audience that at some point in Jerry's life, he had been a believer for a long time, but at some point in Jerry's life, he said to Fenton, you know, now I get it. The Holy Spirit lives in me, and he wants to work on me. And Fenton said to Jerry, he's always been there. You've just ignored him, and you've just sort of rejected his presence. And Jerry responded to Fenton and said, Now I consult him for everything. Now I consult him about every decision I have to make and everything I do. That is the Holy Spirit living, breathing, operating in and through us. That's what he does for us who have been indwelt and sealed and have been guaranteed this inheritance for eternity. And so it begins with understanding who the Holy Spirit is, then understanding what he has done for us, and then ultimately allowing him to be that agent of transformation. Don't quench him. Don't grieve him. Allow him to work in and through you to accomplish that Christ-like model that he's after. We're not transformed by ourselves, but we're transformed by the power of God.